I'm Ian Dalimore, and this is Digital and Dirt. It felt like the coolest thing on the planet. Once again, you're rolling out a new product. I just opened a bottle of champagne. My next guest has been in the media industry for over 20 years. Prior, he was in the UK in the music, film, and sponsorship side of the business. He's a graduate of the University of Wales. He's an amazing storyteller. He's a great dad and a very good friend of mine over the last 15 years, Dave Etherton. Nice to have you, my friend. Paul, Paul McCartney, ladies and gentlemen. Paul McCartney. <laughs> it can't possibly, it Is, can't possibly be me. But that was a very nice introduction. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, my friend. 15 years. I can't believe it. It's probably something like that, isn't it? It's a long time. It is. And I saw you kind of wince whenever I said you've been in the media industry for 20. <laughs> it's tough. I know, because I tell, I tell everybody I'm 35. <laughs> yeah, you started when you were 12. Hey, it happens. Yeah, I was like a youth apprentice. Yeah, I'm beyond excited. You and I have become personal friends outside of this space. And I, I'm excited to kind of walk through your career today and give our listeners a, a little bit deeper knowledge into Mr. Dave Etherton. So let's start off. How did you get started in your career? Because you, you definitely weren't in the out-of-home or programmatic side, obviously, in the beginning. Not to begin with. Straight out of university, I got a job at the BBC. And the BBC, I'm sure most people know the BBC are. Like they run television stations and radio stations and also have a, a, a kind of suite of magazines and publications and they're a very revered uh, organization and i moved down to london i'm from near liverpool to begin with i moved down to london and got a job on bbc music magazine which was a classical music magazine i don't really know anything about classical music but I, I got to know quite a bit and i got a job on the sponsorship team selling kind of like advertorials and sponsorship for this classical music magazine. I once sold one to Louis Roderer, the, uh, the champagne manufacturer who made Cristal. And they weren't advertising Cristal, they were advertising a normal champagne, which is very nice. And I remember they sent me a crate, of uh, two crates, like 24 bottles of this champagne. And at the time I was lodging in a house because I didn't have much money and I didn't really know anybody in London. And I sort of shared this flight of, of the house I was in with, with like an eight-year-old boy. <laughs> And I never liked to leave my room. And I just remember, rather than going downstairs, the creaky staircase to get some water in the middle of the night, I just opened a bottle of champagne. <laughs> I had so much of it. Yeah. I didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> but yeah, I don't think I've ever told that story. No, that's anybody, great. But, yeah. Well, uh, I was about to ask you, who, who could you possibly sell sponsorships to for classical music? And that was the one that I could think of. Other than that, I don't... That, yeah. I mean, it must have been a tough I game. mean. I, I love classical music now. I go, you know, when it's running, I go to the Philharmonic quite often around the corner here in New York. But yeah, at the time I didn't know anything but Louis Rodera. So I was there for like 18 months, I think. And then one of the clients that I work with said there's this bigger job at The Guardian. Mm. And The Guardian was another sort of revered British organization, very left-wing, very liberal, broadsheet newspaper with a with a sort of website. It was one of the first websites called Guardian Unlimited. And they hired me to work on their arts and entertainment team. So on film film and music categories. And that was great. But I used to get invited to like uh, the premieres of things. And that was a lot, always a lot of fun. And go to music festivals a lot. Was your degree in film and music or was it just a passion like most people? I sort of fell into media, if I'm honest. No, my degree was in English literature. Okay. You know, vital degree for most jobs. And honestly, I didn't really know what I was going to do when I graduated. And I kind of fell into it. You know, I was a very sort of vociferous 
fan of media. I read a lot of magazines and listen to the radio a lot and some television. Uh, I wasn't a Guardian reader and at the time, and I was told before my interview, whether it's true or not, tell them that you read The Guardian, that you live, dream, and you know your whole life's about The Guardian. So I had to sort of catch up very quickly. I remember Carolyn McCall, Dame Carolyn McCall now, who was the first ever female CEO of an airline in history. I think she now runs ITV or something like this, a big channel in, in the UK. But she was my boss, and she interviewed me. That was my final interview was with her. And I remember her last question was, this is 1999. Have you ever heard of something called the internet? Wow. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, yeah, I have. She's like, well, what kind of role do you think the internet might play for us? I'm like, I don't know. I only started reading The Guardian three days ago before right. this interview. But happily, I bought The Guardian on a Saturday. And on a Saturday, it had this magazine called The Guide, which was all of the like music and entertainment stuff that was coming out. And I was like, well, maybe like for news and entertainment, you know, you could do bits and bobs. Anyway, I seem to have struck a chord with her. And I got the gig and found myself really at the center of some cool stuff because The Guardian invested very heavily in the website Guardian Unlimited, which then became guardian.co.uk. And actually, they'd invested so heavily in their servers and the infrastructure that it was one of the few news websites that didn't go down during 9-11. That's right. Because everything else was, you know, just kind of jammed and wasn't prepared for such an amount of traffic. Mm -hmm. And what happened, I think, in that moment lots of things happened in that moment. What happened to The Guardian in that moment is it sort of created this worldwide demand. People, I think, with a sort of left-leaning interest were able to, coming up in searches all the time, were able to sort of read this thing for the first time. And, you know, it felt like The Guardian couldn't put a foot wrong for a while. And so I was on, I was always sort of working across their different products with a, a brilliant guy called Steve Wing. And he now runs Europe for Magnite, or he's very senior over there. And a lovelier guy you will not meet. And but we were doing all kinds of weird experimentation. You know, we were like working with El Pais and Le Monde and all these international news organizations to give people like PDFs at 5 p.m. that they could download on whatever device they had so they could sort of like read an updated version of the news. Because the news went from being like once a day, as we know, to like almost the expectation was every seven seconds it was going to get updated. Sure. So we did all of these experimentations and... I did some wild things. I, um, I'd launched this new Guardian Plus, okay. which was this division that sits between commercial and editorial and marketing. So the idea is, you know, you create something new that readers will be very interested in, that editorial will create, it will sell more newspapers or get more people to tune in, and it will be entirely funded by a, an advertiser or a brand. And one of the wacky things we did was I launched first ever musical in Second Life, most people probably are too young to remember what Second Life was. Yeah, give a little description of what Second Life is. And you may have to take a shower Se after you listen to this. Yeah, Second Life Second Life was one of these like virtual experiences. And for five minutes, like it felt like the coolest thing on the planet. You know, BBH, the creative ad agency, like opened up their Rio de Janeiro office in Second Life, not in reality. And just, you know, it was a place where you could create an avatar of yourself. You could become the person that you'd always dreamed of. You could learn guitar here. You could do all these things. And so I felt like, well, why don't we create a guide in Second Life in this virtual experience? And so we ended up throwing a music festival called Second Fest and persuaded like the Pet Shop Boys to perform there. And Holly Johnson from Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Can you give us a little, uh, which, a little tune on that? Give you know, relax, don't do it yeah, when you want to go. Anyway. Zulu. Uh, anyway, I say they 
they DJed, but who knows? Because they sent avatars. They might have just, you know, sent us a CD or whatever and, and did it. So I did that. I launched the weekend photography prize. So, you know, the very sort of glossy Saturday magazine that came with the newspaper. We launched the photography prize. I got David Bailey to be one of the judges. And that was really, really good. So did loads of things like that and was there for 10 years. Man and boy got uh, really sort of learning about digital before programmatic actually i think programmatic maybe started after that and then i got approached about this gig at a company called titan an out of home company and i think at the time out of home was sort of enjoying a bit of a, a surge a resurgence but it felt very kind of dirigeur like people were very interested in it it was starting to do some interesting things with digital actually you know it was kind of you're starting to see some digital inventory and people were very excited about that as they were elsewhere right when a newspaper launched the website etc and that job was to run marketing for Titan, which is an American firm, but had bought this English firm, this British firm called Maiden Outdoor, and had set up shop inside this big Victorian townhouse in Victoria, in London. And I didn't really know much about marketing, to be honest. But I hadn't, I hadn't learned much about marketing reading The Tempest or any of the books I read at university. Right. But anyway, a mate of mine, a very good mate of mine, who was actually at BBH, sent me this like marketing director for Dummies book, which I read in like a weekend trying to get ready for this for this gig. That's kind of like your MO because you did it with the Guardian, and yeah. Now you did it. With well, it doesn't doesn't everybody do this yeah, to a degree, right? Yeah, you you, you sort of you have to prep, and it's funny because I remember I won't name any names, but I remember the first CEO I had about two weeks in, I got a call from campaign magazine or or ad week which was like the british kind of weekly media rag you know that everybody would uh, everybody read and rang me to ask is it true the rumor's true has the ceo been fired and i had this realization in this phone call i was like oh am i in charge of comms as well i, <laughs> I don't I think i'd reached the comms part of the marketing for dummies anyway i soon learned about comms and, and all that stuff and found actually that I was pretty good at it. You know, it's quite a diverse gig, isn't it? Like covers quite a lot of different ground. And, and actually the training that I'd got at the Guardian was superb in every, in every way. They really put a lot of time and effort in training and coaching. And that really parlayed very well into this gig. And six months in, I was called up by Bill Applebaum, actually, who owned Titan. And he called me from his place in Malibu. And he said something like, I'm looking at the ocean. I can see the dolphins. And I want you to come to New York. And it was very, uh, how could you say no, you know? Wait, hold on. But he's, so, pitch, uh, he's pitching you his vision of dolphins in the ocean in Malibu. And he wants you to go to New York. So, Yeah, they don't, they don't have dolphins. In, well, do they have dolphins? I've maybe never seen one. Maybe not. No, he was just he was sort of seducing me sure. with, with the glamour of America. And great guy, lovely guy. And, and so, I, you know, I, I came and I thought, well, maybe I'll do this for two years. And I've been here ever since, like 12 years or something. So give our listeners what a strategic move that Titan did and the move that they made by going in and buying all the phone, the old school phones and transform those into advertising. Before I got there, they started to buy these franchises and so had been accumulating the payphone business and it really is a payphone business. So you didn't just sell ads on the side of them. You actually, you have to make sure that all phone lines work. And Scott Goldsmith will tell stories still where people will have, their phone call would have dropped and they'd turn up to Titan's office and they'd say, I want my dollar back. 
And Scott would keep this roll of 50 cent pieces or whatever. Do you get a 50 cent piece? 25 cent pieces. And he'd be like doling out the coins, you know, in between, in between running these giant transit authority relationships. So Titan already had some of those franchises, but I don't think I'd imagine what they could turn into. And, and sort of my role, I came in to run all marketing globally and I was doing that, but I sort of, sort of flexing those parts of me from the Guardian all the time. Very passionate about digital, very passionate about mobile, very passionate about this kind of coming together of the, the old world versus the new world. And as I say, I'd got a lot of training with all that stuff. And so I'd launched the mobile division and we, we invented mobile retargeting. Yeah. Talk, um, about, talk about that gap campaign because it was well before its time. Yeah, it was. The, the dream was that, that you would be able to connect experiences on a mobile device with experiences in the physical world. And so with the Gap campaign, what we did is we were working with one of the marketing directors at the Gap and we geofenced a bunch of like bus shelters and routes where buses went. I don't think any of it was digital. It was like with static, yeah. static signage. And then those, those geofences, if you walked in on a bunch of apps, you would be served the same ad, the same creative. So the idea was you'd be served this really interesting experience on two different channels and cognitively you'd join the dots and it would become this powerful experience. And yeah, we, we really like learned a lot doing that. And we're the first people to do it. And a lot of companies still do it and very successfully. But anyway, I'd launched that division. I was running digital. I was running technology and innovation. And the payphone franchise came up. And at the same time, we've been introduced to this really interesting firm also in New York called Control Group, who were this sort of design and technology consultancy practice who'd, who'd work with firms to sort of reimagine themselves for the future. And they'd built on the go on the subways in New York. So you could sort of see where the delays were. They're still there, like new iterations of it. So we were working with them and we were both sort of fascinated by how technology could could improve user experiences in places like the subway or you know for, in cities knowing that it was a very expensive proposition and so the missing component was advertising brands could you create an experience in the physical world that was every bit as enjoyable as like youtube or facebook where you know you, every day you go onto it, it becomes part of the fabric of your life and it's free because it's funded by ads and they're leveraging data because they've given you something of value, you're willing to give them something back. And so we sort of transposed that thinking to payphones. And just before de Blasio came in, it was the end of Bloomberg's reign as mayor. And he'd done this prize to think about the future of the payphone. And we put something in together, Titan and Control Group. And we made this video with horrible CGI and even worse acting. And anyway, we won it. And I remember going to this like downtown Brooklyn, this cool like warehouse where we had to pitch it. And I don't know why. I rarely wear suits. You never but for wear this a suit. Occasion, I, put a, I, yeah. know. I, I used but to, I used to give I'm, you hell on panels because I'm like, Dave, you wore a t-shirt again? <laughs> but anyway, I'm wearing this ridiculous suit. But we ended up winning this thing. Then de Blasio comes in and he says, no more individual franchises. It's going to be one big franchise, winner takes all. And suddenly, you know, there was a big prize, but there was also a big risk of losing out, you know. And me and a, another lovely guy called Colin O'Donnell, very brilliant guy, locked ourselves in a room for a long time and came up with the concept that became Link and won that contract, which at the time I think was the biggest street furniture contract in history. But also I think it was a moment where out-of-home advertising, and I say this 
I hope in, in not in a sort of show-offy way, because it's not intended to be, but I think it was at this moment where Out of Home changed a wee bit, where we realized it could be about more than just money. You know, you could use digital screens, this sort of communications infrastructure to enrich people's lives, as well as delivering advertising. That these two things could be a part of the same thing. Not in every case, but I think after that, transit authorities and airports, whenever they put out RFPs for new partners, they are interested not just in how much money you can generate, but the beautification of the environment. Like, can we do emergency messaging? Can we, you know, make it easy for people to navigate their way around? And I think Link was really the first at-scale version of, of this. That was really, really, like, a really exciting moment. Really enjoyed that. And throughout your career, you've been a bit of a futurist and someone that was always forward thinking. And I think that's what's kind of inspired me about you and why I've kind of gravitated towards you. The pressure to roll out Link NYC had to have just been the best thing in the world when it finally rolls out. Talk to me about the challenges of being a media owner and now you're pivoting towards a tech company as well. And where does intersection, where does Titan transition over to intersection? Well, thank you for those kind words, first of, of all. Um, and I don't work at intersection anymore. But I, you know, my claim to fame was I named intersection. Ooh, um, tell us more. I came up with a name for it. But anyway, so we won this contract. And then we were still Titan and control group. And we put together a, a joint venture to basically fund it, included Qualcomm and Civic Smartscape. And then Dan Doctoroff, who previously had been deputy mayor for economic development under Mike Bloomberg, you know, talk about transforming cityscapes indelibly. You know, he he built the High Line. The uh, where we work in Hudson Yards is his brainchild, basically. The long story short, he was really sort of excited by the magic of these two relatively small companies coming together to come up with something pretty big. And little did we know, he was also talking to Larry Page about yeah. Google's vision for the future of cities and decided to kind of pull these two things together. So he launched and then runs uh, Sidewalk Labs, which is the Alphabet Smart City Incubator. And like the day after they announced that, he announced Intersection as one of those, you know, really with Link at front and center of that. And Intersection is a, you know, it came up with the name because it, number one, it had this sort of, sort of DNA resonance with Sidewalk Labs, which we'd already been told about, you know, sidewalk intersection but for me it was like the, the company was going to be about the intersection of a bunch of things it was going to be an intersection of the physical world and digital it was going to be an intersection of the past and the future it felt like an appropriate name for it and intersection now is still thriving i think still very well regarded for its technology working with cities and improving people's lives within those environments using ad funded assets to, to do that but it's certainly narrowed in scope over time. Yeah. One of my favorite campaigns, say. and you, I know you definitely remember it, but it was the Coors Light campaign, and it was called The Sounds of the Streets. And yeah, one of the unique things about Link NYC and Intersection was the ability to ingest data at the time. And the uniqueness of Link NYC in general is that it's within city corners and, and throughout the consumer's journey. But throughout the boroughs for this campaign, they would provide different playlist based on the neighborhood that you were in. And I found that fascinating because of the whole hyper-local conversation. 
And here you are as a consumer, just going about your day, you may look at link for the time of day, you know, where buses are, subways are, but now you're given music on your mobile device through this campaign. That was the one that always stood out to me. And I, I'm sure there's hundreds and thousands of them that have been run since then, but that was kind of like, okay, wow, now they have the ability to truly do what the tech is intended for on the Idaho Mad side. Yeah, that was that was one of those great moments. I got to know IPG Media Lab pretty well, David over there and Kenton and Scott. And they were really, you know, really good people interested in doing cool things that help people out and were really open. And I think they said to me, like, what's the most bananas thing you can think of? And I, I was like, well, maybe we could find a way to show people on the street the music people are listening to in that tiny area at that moment in time and i think kenton and david then picked it up and you know got a relationship with shazam and they realized that they could ingest this live music data from shazam figured out how to create these playlists show the music that people listening to at that moment in time in that neighborhood and i told this story quite a few times but not in a few years but um david bowie died halfway through this campaign oh wow and i mean he was a new yorker right he lived just in lafayette street in Soho. And Ian, like in two minutes after the news, every single song across, you know, there were maybe like 500 links across the city. Every song was a Bowie song. And the different songs by different neighborhoods. But you realize the city needed to express itself somehow. And these lumps of metal and glass were somehow mirroring back the way people were feeling. It was quite emotional. It was quite interesting to see it. Living, breathing parts of the city. It was They've really got a handle. I think they're part of the city that people would miss now, were it not there. Yeah, and it's always had very high approval rating. Yeah, and that, that's kind of the key to being a smart city. And, and now this becomes this information center, per se, as you're walking down the streets of New York or Philly or Chicago, yeah. Portland, where you guys continue to roll these out. So it's definitely been a game changer in evolving the out-of-home industry as a whole and, and new companies are emerging intersection continues to thrive as you'd mentioned yeah i mean i don't work there anymore but it's still a thrill to see these things which literally started off on the back of a napkin so evolving your career intersections thriving and next thing you know you and i are having a conversation about place exchange so once again you're rolling out a new product you're doing something innovative and changing in the industry so for our listeners that don't know, give us the elevator pitch on who Place Exchange is and what makes them a different supply side from, from the other folks. My last role at Intersection, I've been in quite a while, was Chief Strategy Officer. And much of my role there was thinking about the future of the media and about digital. And programmatic was one, right? The notion that we can grow our sector by finding ways to build bridges to different types of budgets, in addition to the ones we already get and, and still want to get. You know, just finding ways to enable marketers to think about out of home in a different in a different way. And honestly, I hadn't figured it out. I really hadn't figured it out. We, you know, we tried bits and bobs and worked with different people and none of it was paying off. But then, drumroll, another great, like, mentor and influence walked into, well, he didn't walk into my life, but he walked into all of our lives. But, I think I got a lot out of it, which was Ari. You know, Ari got hired to be the CEO of Intersection. 
And he had, you know, been one of basically one of the founders of Media Math and helped run it along with Josie for a decade and actually built T1, the terminal. And so he arrived with a completely crystalline view of what it would take to truly build a bridge to those incremental, you know, dollars. And I suppose in a way it is analogous to everything that we've been talking about, which is making the physical world imbued with digital aspects and, and, and digital practices. And so our vision was that we believe and still believe that if you can normalize media in the physical world in such a way that it looks and operates like mobile and online, then you can shave off some of the kind of friction-filled edges that have been standing in the way of these new types of campaigns flowing from digital through to out of home. And so we set out to create a, a pure play SSP that would enable that, that would entice the big omnichannel DSPs to pay attention to out of home and enable marketers to seamlessly plug them into to plans like cross-media plans. And it was certainly a, a hard path to kind of leap beyond what had gone on before with essentially specialist out-of-home DSPs and try and appeal to these big omni-channels. But we, uh, over the three and a half years or whatever we've been doing it, we've embarked on, upon something that's made sense for the marketing community and the DSP community and you know, we've been fortunate enough to kind of get in early with a bunch of big omnichannel DSPs and to begin with kind of learning as we as we went. And I think as we stand now, you know, focused initially in the US, we work with the vast majority of supply partners and done great with them, you know, really work in partnership with them. We have fantastic relationships with the DSPs that we work with, a great agency relationships. And I think that our business has been thriving and, and growing. Even in the last 12 months, you know, 18 months rather, since COVID, you know, we've experienced just massive growth, you know, more than exponential hockey stick growth because I think a number of things, a number of things have sort of happened at once. I think ultimately marketers do want to be able to buy uh, our space in the same way that they buy others. They do want to be able to see a campaign flow flawlessly across a multitude of different screens. They do want to see how out of home contributes to the performance of the whole campaign. They don't want to have to abstract it and think about it separately. That's true because they're interested in end results and consumers do sort of like flow from screen to screen effortlessly. So campaigns should as well. I think the DSPs are now that we work with are creating more features for out of home that kind of make it advanced, you know, whether it's around being able to kind of overlay interesting audiences in the same way that they would for mobile and online or um, think about attribution in a new way, just make it seamless for the buyer. I think publishers are now all gung-ho and very sort of proactive about it. The agency groups themselves, like even specialists out of home agencies now embrace it and are really a huge part of the pitch. It's fantastic. And so the whole community is working together, I think, in, in a way that perhaps they hadn't been for, you know, five years ago, four years ago. And then also, I think, COVID, the need for flexibility, sure. the need to be able to lay down a plan, commit a budget, and not have to press go if you don't want or stop it. In the same way that, that buyers are already used to with other digital channels, I think the unexpected uncertainty of COVID requires such a way to buy media, as well as having the sort of precision that, that many campaigns need these days. So I think all of these things came together 
and not just for us, I think programmatic out-of-home industry is thriving anyway. Ours certainly is thriving, and so it's been a real success story. I personally have learned so much. It's like, been like going back to school again, and uh, I've been in sponge mode, you know, for three for three years, and I think most people are the same. Like, there's no great enjoyment that you get from when you're actually learning, is there? Like, sort of creating new synapses or whatever in your brain and, and think about the world differently. And we've built a team from scratch and, you know, I have great love for the team that we've built. They're really great people and it's getting bigger. We've got, you know, we've got like 12 or 13 people we're trying to hire right now. If anybody knows anybody, ping me. You, you know, actually, when I think back on it, I, I've been, I have been fortunate that we've I've broken a lot of new ground and done a lot of cool things. I, I remember in the early days, I say early days, it was just three years ago. And it's been fun as our careers have continued to evolve with new things. You know, think about uh, your friends that are lawyers and are, and are bankers. It's it's basically the same job every day. There's not a lot of change. Yeah. And I remember the, f- the first trip you and I took together, uh, kind of co-pitching Lamar being a, a publisher on Place Exchange early on. And we're in San Francisco and we're talking with StubHub and we're talking with the Trade Desk and we're talking with one other digital agency and you and I in our careers probably given, no exaggeration, half a million pitches. And now these pitches are just different. The conversation's different. The value proposition's yeah. different. The way that we present our medium's different. And and to your point, it's been a lot of fun. But it's it, it definitely teaches you to, to stay on your toes, to be involved, to understand the, the changing of technology. But I, I would agree, the out-of-home industry has seen tremendous success, new campaigns, new clients that have come into the space that we've never had before. It's true. And, and, you know, like you and I have always been uh, good mates, but for a while we were competing media owners. Right. And, um, but still we were, it felt like we were singing from the same hymn sheet consistently. One of the, um, you know, one of the best things about place exchange for me was suddenly to not work at a media owner, but work with all of the media owners to like finally get to work with you and get to work with, you know, all my, all my sort of like friends that I, I like James at Outfront, yep. Wade at, or Kathy at Clear Channel and Lorenzo, at, you know, like just endless people who you've always liked, um, but you couldn't really work with before. Right. And now you really get to, you know, you get to work with all these people. That's been great. And, you're right. I, uh, you know, I worked for Don Allman for years and he was incredibly supportive. And then, by the way, one of the, and I've said it a few times, but literally you will not find a nicer guy than Don, like a genuine guy, straight shooter. He's a, he's a beautiful, beautiful man. Maybe his son. Um, but no one's JD is amazing. Yeah. yeah. They're all, the whole family's amazing. Kathy is his wife. And so I was very, very, very fortunate there. And then Ari, um, Ari's just brilliant. Ari is um, a pioneer in, 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 um, in programmatic and incredibly intelligent, funny, charming, phenomenal presenter, incredibly thoughtful, cares about his people intent- intensely. He's a straight shooter. Uh, and he's got all these other things that he does, you know, like he is a, uh, astrophysicist, yeah. uh, doctor, Bacalta. Um, you know, and a semi-professional poker player plays guitar. He speaks different languages, but he's just lovely. Oh, he's a, a com- great, great guy. Family owns. Yeah, he's like clubs it too. 
yeah, he had comedy seller and he's super funny. He, like, he's really funny. He's just a great guy. Yeah. Uh, and I'm very, very, very fortunate to, um, I think we all are at Places Change that are fortunate to work with him. I, it's been a, it's been a real, like, it's a lot for me to say that these last few years have been the best, uh, of my career, I think. Yeah. Um, cause I've enjoyed such a great career, uh, before it, but like, thanks to him and the people I work with at Place Exchange, it's really been a, uh, a fantastic time for me. Well, this is, this has been very exciting. You know, I, I, as a friend and as a, as a thought leader in the industry alongside with yourself, it's, it's fun to get to know you on a deeper level, have our audience learn a little bit more about you and your path and, and look at it's, it's a nice tag to have as, as a futurist. So, you know, you're still 35, so you got plenty of time to continue to evolve the out-of-home right. industry. So I'm proud of you. Uh, I keep, <laughs> keep working, keep doing what you're doing, keep changing changing this space. And uh, this was a treat, Dave. I, I greatly appreciate your time and keep up the fantastic work, my friend. Thanks, mate. Uh, love, we love working with you and, and everyone else at Lamar. And uh, thanks for having me on. Of course. We'll definitely, we'll have you on again and you could tell... Uh, tell some more stories for us so thanks Dave there's plenty more there's plenty more to come thanks Ian take care Digital and Dirt is brought to you by Lamar Advertising to learn more check out the links in the description or go to lamar.com if you enjoyed this podcast make sure to subscribe rate and review on Spotify Apple or other platforms where podcasts are found thanks for listening